Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today, making his fourth appearance on Madison's Notes, which actually ties him for the lead, the all-time lead, is none other than Alan C. Gelzo. Alan Gelzo is a senior research scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and director of the James Madison Program's initiative on politics and statesmanship. He is one of the world's, if not the world's, leading scholar on the American Civil War. He is the author of many excellent books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, and Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. He joins us today to discuss his best-selling new biography, Robert E. Lee, A Life. Alan Gelzo, welcome back to Madison's Notes. Well, it's very good to be back, Nino, and it's very good to be here to have an opportunity to talk about Robert E. Lee, A Life, and any other questions that might intersect the trajectory of the life of Robert Edward Lee? The obligatory first question, and you, are, you already know what this question has to be. Robert E. Lee was a traitor. He swore an oath to defend his country, this country, and then waged war against the same country. Yet here you are, a self-described Yankee from Yankee land, having written a biography of that man. You and I are now talking about that biography and that man, and our listeners are trying to decide whether they should listen to a conversation about a book about that man. Some interviewers might phrase the question this way. What's wrong with you? I'll put put it this way. Why did you write about Robert E. Lee, and why should we read about Robert E. Lee? Well, there are a number of reasons. One, the most obvious, is that Robert E. Lee is a very important figure in the history of the American Civil War era. You can't really talk about the American Civil War without talking about Robert E. Lee, because in large measure, the survival of the Confederacy, for as long as it did survive, was really in large measure the result of his ingenuity, his actions, his planning, and his his strategy. So to speak of the American Civil War, there are some people you have to speak of because they play a prominent role, obviously, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses Grant, William Sherman. On the Confederate side, there's simply no getting away from Robert E. Lee. Many of the other Confederate leaders were less than what we might call first drawer. Jefferson Davis is not the most memorable example of an American political figure. And many of the other Confederate generals and leaders were, shall we say, not quite up to the same level as Lee. And we could probably talk a great deal about the Civil War without ever needing to refer to them. But Robert E. Lee is different. Robert E. Lee is a non-negotiable. If we're going to talk about the Civil War, we have to talk about the Union and the Confederacy. If we talk about the Confederacy, we've got to talk about Lee. So Lee is a subject simply there. It's too big to ignore for anyone who is seriously interested in writing about the American Civil War. Another reason to write about Lee is that Lee has not received very nearly the attention in terms of biographies that many other significant figures in the Civil War era have received. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln, obviously, has received tremendous amounts of attention from biographers, 
and I will plead guilty to having <laughs> participated in a, in a large measure of that. Uh, but Ulysses Grant, likewise, has uh, been the object of a number of important biographies. In fact, over the last 20-odd years, there have been, by my offhand reckoning, something like eight freestanding biographies of Ulysses Grant. Mm -hmm. And along with it, there is the 27 volumes of the Papers of Ulysses Grant project. So Ulysses Grant is fairly well covered. Even William Tecumseh Sherman, even though Sherman goes through the war, largely playing second fiddle to Grant. Nevertheless, Uncle Billy Sherman has been the subject of 10 biographies over the same period, and we have collections of Sherman's letters and other things that Sherman has written. Uh, we even can go down, we can drill down as far as Andrew Johnson, for instance, uh, Lincoln's successor in the presidency, and probably the successor we all regret, Nevertheless, there's a papers of Andrew Johnson. There's even a papers of Jefferson Davis. Mm. So when we look at the situation as far as research goes, there's so many of the other major figures who have been covered in great detail. Lee, less so. The great monument of Lee biography is Douglas Southall Freeman's four volumes, R.E. Lee, which were published in the 1930s and which won a Pulitzer Prize. They are uh, a great monument to Robert E. Lee, and they represent a stupendous amount of research on the part of Freeman and the people who were working for Freeman. Uh, it's a very hagiographical kind of biography. Uh, for Freeman, we start out with Lee as a saint, and we end with Lee as a, as a saint. In fact, the closing pages of uh, Freeman's uh, biography of Lee almost lead you to expect that you're about to witness a resurrection at the end. Um, but at the same time, Freeman's biography is so huge against the sky that it's very intimidating for people to attempt a biography. The last really serious biography of Robert E. Lee to come, and I'm thinking here especially from an academic source, is Emory Thomas's 1995 uh, Robert E. Lee, a biography, which was an extraordinarily fine piece of work and, a, and simply the, single, the best single volume biography of Lee on offer. But that was in 1995. Since then, there have been a few efforts here and there, but mostly either small scale or in at least one example I can think of, really not much more than a condensation of Freeman. So the field for writing a biography of a major figure of the Civil War era really lay much more open for Robert E. Lee than for almost any other figure. And knowing that, that was the sort of thing that would pull me into it. Why, in other words, why produce yet another Grant or another Sherman book? Robert E. Lee has not received nearly the biographical attention that these others have. Now, there is a reason for that. And the reason is what you discover if you get anyway, even remotely, deeply into the study of the life of Robert E. Lee. And that is that unlike Grant or unlike Johnson or unlike Jefferson Davis, there is no single repository of Robert E. Lee's papers. Mm. And there are a lot of papers to keep track of. Robert E. Lee was a compulsive letter writer. He must have written, by my reckoning, something between six and 8,000 personal letters in his lifetime, sometimes writing two and three of them a day. 
He, curiously enough, he hated official paperwork as an army officer, but he devoted an enormous amount of time to personal letter writing. And the difficulty is that much of that letter writing is today scattered in archives all across the country, in penny packets here, in penny packets there. I have had to work with archivists as disconnected from each other as the the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York City and the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, mm-hmm. and at all points in between. Uh, there's, for instance, there's a small collection in uh, the Missouri archives. There's a small collection at a state library in Georgia. Uh, there's a collection at the Library of Congress, most of which is a copy of materials at the Virginia uh, Museum of History and Culture. And then there are other collections that are at places like Stratford Hall, uh, Lee's Birthplace, and just beyond that. Sometimes you'll find a, a place which might have like four or five uh, Robert E. Lee letters. Another place might have two or three. Tracking them down can be a really time-consuming and exhausting uh, project. And what makes it even more complicated is how much Lee material is actually still in private hands. Hmm. So that I actually had two friends who would keep an eye on eBay and various auction sites for when Lee material would bubble to the surface. Mm. And, of course, I'm, <laughs> I have to admit, I'm not in a position to purchase <laughs> these, uh, these, these pieces of Lee history. Uh, there was one letter that I saw there, that, and it was not a particularly significant or, or earth-moving letter, but the letter was going for $25,000 mm. because it was a Robert E. Lee letter. Right. Uh, I'm not going to be buying these, but... Very often, these sites will include a transcription. So what I do is I go for the transcription on the website, and that's how I locate these things. But, I, again, I'm relying on people who are keeping an eye on a variety of uh, websites and auction sites. And these letters of Lee come from private sources. They pass into other private collections. And for the most part, scholars who are using uh, museums or archives uh, simply aren't catching those particular pieces because they're moving outside the orbit of the museums and the archival collections. When you add all of that up, that provides a pretty formidable discouragement to anyone who wants to undertake a biography of Robert E. Lee. If you're writing about Ulysses Grant, you've got those 27 volumes of the papers of Ulysses S. Grant. And they're there, they're handy, they're easily accessible, the footnoting is wonderful, the edition is great. Uh, That really solves a lot of your problems. It also explains why the most recent Grant biography by Ron Chernow tops out at over a 1,000 pages. So you got all that material there. And likewise for Lincoln, the collected works of Lincoln, the papers of Abraham Lincoln Project. If you're going to write about Lincoln, a lot of this stuff is really remarkably easily accessible from the work of archivists and collectors who have put these things together over the last 50 or 60 years. Not so in the case of Robert E. Lee. Much more of a challenge. And that was why there was really not a whole lot in the way of Lee biographical literature, and that's what drew me into it. Being drawn into it, I might at one point have said, oh, this is a good deal more of a thick, muddy swamp than I anticipated. Maybe I should go write about something else. (laughs) But 
I'm not one of these people who, when he takes a step or two forward, likes to retrace his steps. So once I was into the Lee stuff, I thought, well, I'm going to go straight through and go through to the end here. And, and we did. And the book itself is a, is a product of a lot of research in Lee's writings as I was able to track them down, locate them uh, in a variety of places. I should say, too, that a lot of Lee material is going to continue to surface. Mm -hmm. uh, my book is done, and for all practical purposes, I'm done with Robert E. Lee. Uh, but Lee material is still out there. It's still coming to the, to the surface. Uh, I have this drawn to my attention every now and again. Uh, so there is going to be still more work available to be done on the subject of Robert E. Lee. Uh, but for right now, at least, uh, this is an effort to try to tie together as many of these various and scattered sources on Robert E. Lee. So that's a second reason. A third reason, Nino, is, well, let's call it contrarianism. It's precisely because there were so many difficulties that it kind of beckons to you. Mm. And what also beckons is the fact that Lee is a difficult subject for biography. If you're writing about Abraham Lincoln, you're writing about someone you can, you can easily admire. Mm -hmm. If you're writing about Ulysses Grant, you can still find a great deal to admire in the character of Grant. It's much more difficult to approach the subject of Robert E. Lee, especially when you know, first off, that what you are going to encounter is someone who raised his hand against his flag, against his country, and against the Constitution. And that poses a tremendous difficulty, especially since the cause for which he did those things was the cause of the defense of human slavery, of human chattel slavery. How do you write difficult biography like that? That in itself posed a challenge, and I have to admit, challenges to me are like the cookies in the jar. <laughs> I, I cannot resist the lure of the difficult subject, because I, I, it's, it's easy to write about the easy subjects, but it is more of a challenge. It's a little bit like when Mallory was asked, why are you planning to climb Mount Everest? And his response was, because it's there. <laughs> well, there is something of that same uh, attitude uh, in my own mind uh, when I see something like this that is teeming with questions, problems, difficulties. Uh, that's what makes me say, well, because it's there, let's go at this. Because you, you can't ignore difficult biography. Yeah. Not everybody who can be the subject of a biography is going to be easily admirable. Uh, human nature simply doesn't permit that. There are some people whose evil lies so close to the surface and is so all-encompassing in their character that you really can do nothing but write about them in terms of constant disapproval. I think of this in terms, for instance, of people who must write a biography, as Ian Kershaw did, of Adolf Hitler, yeah. or those who have had to undertake studies of Joseph Stalin, or other dramatically evil figures. But there are also many people who fall somewhere in between there, who are, let's say, not necessarily the outright evil, but they are the people who are shall we say, out of step. They are the people who make mistakes. They are the people who are nearsighted, morally or otherwise. Uh, I think about a Winston Churchill. On the one hand, Churchill, 
was completely out of step when it came to the Dardanelles, when it came to King Edward, when it came even to colonialism. And yet he was utterly correct, right, and insightful about Nazism and Nazi totalitarianism. And we, don't, we do not want to contemplate what the results would look like today in our world had it not been for Winston Churchill. So Churchill represents, yes, a subject of difficult biography, but it's a subject that has to be taken on its own terms, and that biography and those difficulties have to be explained in full. And the same thing could be said for Ulysses Grant. In 1862, he issues an order banning Jews from his camps. So if you're a Jewish sutler, if you're uh, a Jewish dealer in goods, you're selling things to the soldiers because they have money and they want to buy them. Uh, clearing his camps of Jews, as he did in that order, was a repulsive thing. Yeah. Uh, repulsive enough, in fact, that Jewish leaders appealed to Lincoln directly, and Lincoln had to revoke the order. Mm. On the other hand, here is Ulysses Grant in 1871, smashing the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina. So you have subjects who do difficult things, who present difficulties in biography, and you encounter something of the same thing with Robert E. Lee. What you're dealing with is not someone who would you say would be a subject of impossible biography. What you're looking at is someone who is a topic of difficult biography, who understood very clearly and said so, that slavery was a moral and political evil in any country. And yet, having said that and acknowledged that, he turns and looks in the other way, almost as though he wants to pretend that he doesn't see it. He's involved in the defense of the slave system. Before the war, he is involved and connected with the slaves that are owned by his in-laws, the, the Custises. He benefits as having married into the Custis family. He benefits from, the, from slave labor and slave service. Yet, on the other hand, he does not really find himself personally invested in any serious way in the slave system. He inherits a slave family from his mother's estate, but there's no evidence that he buys or sells slaves. And what's more, when his father-in-law, George Washington Park Custis, dies in 1857, Lee is named executor of the will. And part of the responsibility in executing the will is the emancipation of all of the Custis slaves over a five-year period. And this is a process which Lee undertakes and brings to a conclusion in December of 1862. Now, in December of 1862, think of it this way. In December of 1862, Robert E. Lee was General Lee by that point. He has become already this Confederate hero. If he had gone into any... Confederate Virginia court and said, oh, let's just forget this whole business about my father-in-law and emancipation. I, I have a hard time believing that any Virginia court would say him nay. Yeah. But he persists. He insists that he is going to go ahead with the emancipation. He does go ahead with the emancipation. He signs all the papers. He gets his son, Costas, who's stationed in Richmond, to assist him in filing all the papers. And not only does he move to the emancipation of those Custis slaves, but he also emancipates that one slave family that he owned in his own name, even though there was nothing in the Custis will that mandated that. In other words, by the beginning of 1863, Robert E. Lee is slaveless. 
he has divested himself of the very reason the Confederacy is fighting its war. And then in 1865, he aligns himself with those people in the Confederacy who want to talk about emancipation and the recruitment of blacks yeah. for the Confederate Army. Now, granted, that's, that's a gesture of desperation on the part of the Confederacy. The, the water is over the boilers for the Confederacy by the early spring of 1865. And yet Lee commits himself publicly to that, to the horror of many Confederates. The Charleston Mercury, when it finds out about Lee's advocacy of emancipation, the, the, the Charleston Mercury goes berserk. They call him as many names as they could possibly get. They call him an old Federalist. They accuse him of never having really been in sympathy with the Confederacy. What, what do we make of that? Uh, there are some people then who will seize that and say, well, this means that suddenly Robert E. Lee has achieved sainthood. No, not quite. It's not that easy. Because, again, is Lee's pressure for emancipation principled or pragmatic? Mm. Uh, that's very difficult to pry apart, especially since Lee afterwards insisted that he had been badgering Jefferson Davis about the need for emancipation as early as 1862. Now, we only have his word on that, but... It's an ambiguous situation. It gets ambiguous after the war as well because he does nothing in the post-war years that you could point to and say, well, here is something he's doing overtly to improve the status and the position of the freed slaves in the South or even in Virginia. He doesn't do it. He doesn't lift a finger that way. So you have in Robert E. Lee a very complicated figure a figure of difficult biography. But just because it's difficult biography does not mean that the biographer is licensed to shy away from it. Uh, to the contrary, sometimes difficult biography is the best test of one's, one's tradecraft yeah. as a historian and a biographer. So, Nino, that's a very, very, very long <laughs> answer to your question, but it's a very, very complicated person that we're dealing with. Yeah. And I, and I want to stress the word complicated. He's not a complex person. Abraham Lincoln is a complex person. Robert E. Lee is complicated because, because Lee does not have the depth of an Abraham Lincoln. Where you find difficulty and contradiction in Abraham Lincoln is because of the swirl of complexities within the man. You don't find anything like that depth of thought in Robert E. Lee. What you do find, however, are complications. The complications make for difficult biography, and I have to admit the lure of the challenge uh, helped to draw me into that. So many different directions I want to go right now. Maybe we can start here. You kept talking about how it's a difficult biography to do, difficult because Lee's hard to understand, difficult because there are sources scattered all over the place. What about the challenges for you personally? I mean, that must have been hard because you recognize this man, rightfully so, as a traitor. You've devoted your whole professional career to the study of Abraham Lincoln. You are just yourself personally a kind of dyed-in-the-wool American patriot. That must have been hard to try. I mean, you have to be honest when doing a biography of someone. You have to try your best to put yourself in their shoes, to try to understand them as they understood themselves. What was that like for you? I think it was a necessary 
discipline because if you have a commitment, as I have a commitment, to the Constitution, to the principles of the Declaration, to American life and government, then the people who challenge that, I have to try to understand what is motivating them. Because if I don't make any effort to understand that, then that weakens the integrity of what I promote and defend. Curiously, and this may surprise you, Nina, when I began this project at the end of 2013 and into 2014, I really had two options in front of me as subjects. One, of course, was Robert E. Lee, and that was where where I went. But the other project I was giving serious consideration to was writing a book about the Popular Front of the 1930s. Hmm. And just by way of quick explanation, the Popular Front was really what the Communist Party USA in the 1930s was using as a cultural mechanism to recruit support for their programs during the Great Depression. And using the, great, using the experience of the Great Depression, using the siren song of the Popular Front, drawing artists, writers, composers into the mix of the CPUSA's programs. And the Popular Front was a, was a major force in the 1930s and the 1940s. It drew any number of people today that we would recognize as important American cultural figures into its ranks. I think particularly here of Aaron Copeland as an example. So what was I trying to do in that? I was trying to understand why people would embrace those kinds of principles, why they would allow themselves to be drawn into the grasp of what they must surely have understood to have been playing with the fire of the CPUSA. What would make people do that? What would motivate them to do that? What would motivate a Richard Wright? What would motivate a a young Ralph Ellison? in in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, I wanted to understand that because if I can understand that, then I can reply to it. Mm -hmm. If I understand that, then I can understand myself. So a lot of the times, the best way to look at yourself and understand yourself is to see it in the mirror image. Mm -hmm. And I was looking, in a sense, I was looking to write a book about a mirror image Mm -hmm. of my own values. And I might have gone to the Popular Front, or I might have gone to Robert E. Lee. Well, I went to Robert E. Lee. Maybe I'll go back to the Popular Front. I don't know. (laughs) Because fundamentally, I I have to say this is what people may wonder, what's that got to do with the American Civil War? Strictly speaking, I identify myself professionally as an American intellectual historian. Mm. In other words, a historian of American ideas. Mm. Now, A lot of what I've written about is about Lincoln and the Civil War, but people will notice that when I write about it, a lot of it is about the ideas of Lincoln, the ideas of the Civil War. Even when I wrote about the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, people could notice this was not your usual Civil War battle book, the kind of Civil War buff book. Uh, it It was about how people conceived of the idea of warfare in the 19th century, what tactical and strategic doctrine was because that's a species of intellectual Mm -hmm. history and that was the way I wrote the Gettysburg book. Those were the controlling forces in writing that book. So I do intellectual history. I do the history of ideas because I I love ideas. I love what ideas do for people. I love the way that ideas shape people. I remember the words of the psalmist. 
as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Mm. And I take that as a, as a guiding rule. So I could have gone the route of the popular front book. I could have gone the route of Robert E. Lee. Well, I went Robert E. Lee. Uh, but even then, what's guiding me is this sense of ideas. What are the ideas that are motivating people, that shape them, that explain why they made the decisions, sometimes catastrophic decisions, that they made? Yeah. Well, in a second, I promise we will turn to what it was that Robert E. Lee was thinking in his heart. But I want to start here because for most of us, our experience of or awareness of Robert E. Lee begins with the Civil War. And before that, he's he's in his 50s at that point. That's right. Before that, he seems like a totally nondescript historical figure that if it weren't for the Civil War, none of us would have ever heard of Robert E. Lee. Can you say a little bit about who he was before he came to that momentous decision? Professionally speaking, if we had to write a paragraph on Robert E. Lee without any reference to the Civil War, it would be a comparatively short paragraph. We would say, class of 1829, United States Military Academy, commissioned Corps of Engineers, serves in the Corps of Engineers at places like Fort Pulaski, Fort Monroe, the St. Louis Waterfront, rebuilding the St. Louis Waterfront as a Corps of Engineers project. Uh, Fort Carroll in Baltimore Harbor, Fort Hamilton in New York Harbor, and a spell as superintendent of West Point, bearing in mind that at that point, West Point still is very much a Corps of Engineers school. So you'd be looking at a fairly short paragraph describing the career of an Army engineering officer, a good Army engineering officer, but one whose only real experience of what we would call warfare would be in the Mexican War, 1846 to 1848. But even there, his experience in the Mexican War is not in command of troops. It is as a staff officer for General Winfield Scott, who has overall command of the great invasion from the coast at Veracruz up to Mexico City and the capture of Mexico City. Now, he plays an important role as a staff officer for Scott, and Scott Scott begins to rely on Lee almost as his eyes and ears. But it's as a staff officer. It's as a reconnaissance person. Scott will say that most of the honors that he, Scott, won in the Mexican War really could be traced back to Robert E. Lee. Mm. But they were still the honors won by Winfield Scott. (laughs) So Robert E. Lee has this one moment in the the Mexican War uh, where he's in active service. But even then, he's not in any command position. And no one after the Mexican War uh, seeks out Robert E. Lee uh, to ask him if he'll publish his memoirs. Uh, it's just not he's, not, he's not a visible figure that way. He's an enabler, a talented enabler, so talented that Winfield Scott sees him and puts a very high value on him. But apart from that, he goes back to being an engineering officer, and it's so humdrum that in... In 1855, he actually leaves the Corps of Engineers to accept a commission as lieutenant colonel of the 2nd Cavalry, which takes him to uh, Texas. And the reason he does it is because that's really the only way he's ever going to gain promotion in the Army. I mean, when he's superintendent of West Point, he's still stuck at the rank of captain. Mm. And the only way he's going to break out from that, he realizes it, is if he leaves the Corps. Leaving the Corps of Engineers would be something equivalent to leaving a tenured job in academe as a professor 
uh, to become a salesman in an insurance company. Hmm. Because that's the only way some people might think they're going to realize that they're actually going to rise to the top of something. Uh, that's what Lee does, though. And it's a measure of how limited and how constrained his career had been up to that point. Even then, when he goes to Texas with the 2nd Cavalry, he really spends all of the time there, you know, five years that he spends uh, with the 2nd Cav in Texas. He's really spending it chasing banditti, uh, he, Comanches all around the, the staked plains, never once fires a shot in anger. Mm. Uh, curiously, and, and people are... are shocked when they realized this. Robert E. Lee never commanded troops under fire until October of 1859 when he's given the job along with two companies of United States Marines to suppress John Brown's insurrection at Harpers Ferry. That's the first time he ever actually commands troops under fire. Given that, it would seem on the surface that he would be about the last choice that anybody would make for some kind of broad, important field command in the middle of the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, so up to that point, up to the Civil War, he's not exercising what you would call some kind of memorable career. It's not like Washington and the French and Indian War. Yeah. You know, nothing like, like that at all. Uh, it's not quite as bad as Ulysses Grant, <laughs> but uh, still, if, if you in 1859... Uh, had to point to someone in the United States Army who was going to represent the future of warfare in the United States, I, I don't think it would have been any kind of automatic decision that people would have pointed the finger at Robert E. Lee. Yeah. We get to the Civil War, and according to Lee's own wife, the decision to turn away from the Union and begin down the path that would lead to his command of the Confederate forces and a brutal war caused Lee so much distress that he wept tears of blood. Why did Lee do it? He shared Lincoln's belief that our nation was meant to be a perpetual union. He claimed he wanted to live under no flag but the star-spangled banner. And yet, he takes up arms against his country. Why? Someone recently reviewed the Lee book, and he sent me a copy of the review, and... I replied to him, I said, well, this is very, very, you've said a number of really interesting things. But the one thing that I'm really waiting for reviewers to detect in this book is the voice of me screaming from page one until the last page, don't do it. And that sense of, of urgency on my part, that I think that really is there. And I'm, you know, I, I want to see if people pick that up. No, I'll just say something about that. It is there. And the whole way through, I was kind of waiting to see some hint. Some, oh, well, he had this kind of hidden distaste for the U.S. government. No, nothing like that. Nothing. He recognizes it as revolution, yes. as treason. He knows that the Union is meant to be perpetual. He doesn't seem like a supremely ambitious man who would do anything for command. And yet he does it. I think there are a number of interesting reasons that are floating in the air around Robert E. Lee in April of 1861. First thing I think we have to do is to understand that in April of 1861, nobody knew what was going to happen. Hmm. We know that there's going to be a civil war that's going to last four years, that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of lives, and which is going to leave a livid scar across American history. We know that. He did not. Yeah. 
If anything, there were plenty of assurances that the confrontation, which had begun in the winter of 1860 to 61, with seven southern states seceding from the Union, most of the discussion about that was, this is not permanent. This is not going to result in a war. Carl Schurz, a northerner, an emigre, a refugee from Germany in the 1848 revolutions, said that back in 1850, the Southerners threatened secession. They walked out, took a drink, and came back. Well, what will happen now? Ah, oh, they're going to walk out again, take two drinks, <laughs> and then they'll come back. People did not expect this was going to explode into a war. Governor Letcher of Virginia, even Winfield Scott, predicted that what would happen would be peaceful secession, the split up of the United States into two, maybe three, not more than five confederacies. But then after a while, they would realize that they had much more in common than they had otherwise. And then they would come together. There'd be a renegotiation. There would be a reconstruction of the Union. That's where the term is first being used. There'd be a new constitutional convention. Then everything would be sorted out, and everything would be put back together again peacefully. Mm. A lot of people really believed that was what was going to happen. So Lee looks at this situation and there's no guarantee that what's going to happen here is going to result in violent conflict. All right, that's one thing. Second context, property. Robert E. Lee lives at Arlington. Now, when I say Arlington, I don't mean the National Cemetery. That doesn't exist yet. What I mean is the great house on the hill overlooking what is today the National Cemetery. That is the Arlington estate that was owned by his Custis in-laws. Well, his mother-in-law and father-in-law had passed away, and he was living there with his wife, uh, Mary Custis Lee. But he doesn't own it. Here's one of the quirky things about the Lee family relationships. When old GWP Custis dies and makes Robert E. Lee the executor of his estate, his estate he cuts him out of the will entirely. The Arlington estate goes not to Robert E. Lee, it goes to Lee's oldest son, George Washington Custis Lee. Custis Lee is so scandalized by this, by the way this, his grandfather handled this, that he actually goes to his father and offers to sign the property over to him. Robert E. Lee says, no, this is the way your grandfather wanted it, and we're going to play by those rules. But what it means is that Lee has to be constantly keeping his eye on what's going to happen to Arlington. What's going to happen to this property that I have to be responsible for securing for my children, and especially my oldest son, and my wife, who will have a life interest in Arlington. He's got to worry about that, and that becomes a concern, I think, a central concern, in Lee's calculus of what to do. So he is presented with a situation in April of 1861. Winfield Scott now the general-in-chief of the army, but now also too old, really, to take the field himself, recommends to President Lincoln that Robert E. Lee be given field command of any force that's going to be used to deal with the secessionists. The offer comes to Lee through the agency of Francis Preston Blair. Old F.P. Blair was an old Washington hand. He was working with the, the new Lincoln administration to build up what was happening and uh, in Washington at that point. And Blair, representing Lincoln, makes the offer to, to Lee. Lee turns him down. Lee makes it clear, I'm not doing this because I'm doing it in defense of slavery. 
He said, if it was up to me, I'd free every slave in the South rather than see the Union disrupted. But I can't accept this. He then goes to Winfield Scott. I mean, literally walks around the corner to Winfield Scott and explains to Scott, I can't accept this commission because it will array me against my children and I have to watch out for my children's future. Of course, what he means is Arlington. So he goes back to Arlington, resigns his commission in the U.S. Army. All right, that's stage one. Mm -hmm. Look at the context in which he's made the decision. He, what, he, what he's thinking is this. If there's not going to be a war and if Virginia secedes from the Union, but I accept this command, Virginia will confiscate Arlington. We'll lose everything. On the other hand, if there's no war and I decline command and stay at Arlington, then I'll keep Arlington for my family. But there'll be no war. The federal government won't cross the Potomac and confiscate Arlington. All right, that's decision one. Decision two comes when blandishments are made from Richmond. Richmond is on the verge of secession. It does, in fact, secede on April 19, 1861. And the authorities in Richmond ask Lee to come to Richmond and consult for them. He agrees. That's decision two. Why does he agree to do that? Well, he agrees to do it because it wasn't the first time. I mean, even going back to the John Brown raid, uh, Lee had received invitations from the Virginia state authorities to come and consult for them on military affairs. All right, so that's, that's not necessarily remarkable on its own. But he goes to Richmond, and what he finds in Richmond is that Richmond is already aflame for secession. Now, his cousin, Cassius Francis Lee, had, con had, had sat down and talked with Robert. Uh, they, were, they were contemporaries. They, contemporaries, they almost looked like twins. Mm. But Cassius Francis Lee said, right, in fact, at that time, Robert E. Lee was going to Richmond to act as a promoter for peace. He was going to argue for Virginia to remain neutral in the secession crisis. But Lee goes to Richmond, and the horse is already out of the stable. What he's presented with is a commission to take charge of Virginia volunteers. He agrees. What you're looking at here is not one decision. It's a series of decisions. Yeah. And each, each decision that he makes takes him deeper and deeper into the mud until finally when Virginia secedes from, <clears throat> from the Union and then joins the Confederacy. By the way, the one is not necessarily the same thing as the other. Yeah. When Virginia finally moves to become part of the Confederacy, by then it's too late. Mm -hmm. He's already committed himself. So what happens is not so much one flash of decision. It is a series of decisions that he makes that get him more and more wrapped up in what is happening with the Confederacy in Virginia. But what's driving him? I think overwhelmingly what has driven him has been his concern about family and property. Because all during the Civil War, you do not find in Robert E. Lee someone who is a breast-beating, pro-Confederate, pro-slavery person. If anything, in Robert E. Lee's letters all through the, the Civil War, nobody was, was criticizing and hectoring the Confederate leadership more strenuously than Robert E. Lee. Yeah. And at the very end, when he's on his path to Appomattox Courthouse, he says, very frankly, to William Nelson Pendleton, 
This is how I knew it was going to end all along. He didn't have any illusions about this. But the decision that he makes is a decision he thinks he has to make for the protection of family and property. It's the wrong decision. It's the wrong decision, but he can't dial it back. Correct me if my memory's mistaken about this. But also toward the end, he makes a remark as they're, when they're approaching Appomattox that he would rather die a thousand deaths than meet with, with Grant. Yeah. What explains that? Because on, on the one end, you have kind of this hesitation to enter the war. He's not a true believer in the cause of states' rights or slavery. Uh, it's kind of very prudential, practical decisions that he makes, the wrong decision, like you said. And then at the very end, he says, well, this is always how it was going to be. But then there's that moment toward the end where he seems like a true believer for a second. He says, I would rather die a thousand deaths. It's not because of some, some magnificent commitment some samurai dedication to the Confederacy. It's because of his anxiety of what terms Grant is liable to impose. Mm. If he goes and meets with Grant, who is he meeting? He's meeting unconditional surrender, Grant. This This is the man with the reputation wrapped around those words. What does unconditional surrender mean in the environment of Robert E. Lee? What is the Confederacy legally? The Confederacy is not a government. I mean, it, ha- it functions like a government, but is it legally recognized by anyone as a government? No. Does Abraham Lincoln recognize it as a government? No. He'll never use the terms Confederate States of America. I mean, Lincoln, good lawyer that he was, would always invent some kind of circumlocution to t- when he had to talk about the Confederacy. Uh, there is a, a refusal from start to finish ever to recognize that the Confederacy is a legitimate government. Always the Confederacy is an insurrection. Always the Confederacy is a rebellion. And it is to be treated that way. Now, if Lee surrenders to Grant, to unconditional surrender Grant, what is he surrendering? He's surrendering the armed forces of an insurrection. And he's surrendering to a man who is under no obligation to offer conditions. What would the result be? You could have court-martials and executions of Lee's officers including Lee himself, hangings. Why not? Why not some kind of Roman triumph through the streets of Washington or New York of Lee's army and some kind of death march to prison camps like the Bataan Death March? All of that would have been perfectly legal and possible under the terms of international law as was understood in the 19th century because the Confederacy is not a legitimate government. Those who are captured as prisoners of war are, technically speaking, not prisoners of war. And anyone whom Lee is going to surrender at Appomattox could quite conceivably be regarded simply as a traitor who could be executed out of hand. Lee knows that it is within Grant's power to impose that. He just doesn't know what Grant is going to offer. Now, Lee has officers around him, like Edward Porter Alexander, who plead with him, Don't go to meet with Grant. Instead, tell the Army of Northern Virginia to scatter to the woods, to the hills, to the Appalachians. We'll carry on a guerrilla warfare. Lee has something less than 30,000 men at Appomattox. But 30,000 men with arms in their hands, 30,000 men with officers who have been through battles and campaigns, can you begin to imagine the havoc? that they would wreak in the center of the country, carrying on guerrilla warfare up and down the spine of the Appalachians, 
and across the Appalachians into Tennessee and Kentucky, which have already been ravaged by local guerrilla warfare. Can you imagine how long that would go on? So Lee has to confront people who are begging him, don't surrender, let's take to the hills and carry on the war that way. The war could have gone on for another 30 years on those terms. And the cognate to that, if you want to see what that really would have looked like, look at what happens in the Caucasus in the middle of the 19th century when the Russian Empire tries to subdue the Caucasus. Mm. The forces there under the Emir Shamil go to guerrilla warfare. They carry on a guerrilla campaign of more than two decades. And there's no reason why the same thing might not have happened here. When Lee says he'd rather die a thousand deaths, it's not because of some kind of mystic loyalty to the Confederacy. It's because of his anxiety that the terms that Grant might impose would involve that degree of humiliation for his men. That's why he'd rather die a thousand deaths. He goes to meet with Grant, and he makes it clear, if he doesn't get decent terms from Grant, he'll come back and they'll do the guerrilla thing. When he goes to Appomattox Courthouse and meets with Grant, the story is very different. Mm-hmm. Grant instead says, I'm, I'm not going to impose these draconian conditions. I'm going to parole everyone from Lee on down. You're going to get to go home unmolested. You're going to take a horse or a mule if you want. And no one's going to bother you afterwards. You're just going to lay down your arms and that's it. And Lee looks at that and says, this is wonderful. This is perfect. I'll take these terms. The funny thing is what he does not realize is that Ulysses Grant was really not in a position to do more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you get this wonderful story in, in Grant's memoirs about how he goes to the surrender and you know, Lee is there in this spotless dress uniform, gold sash, state sword that has been presented by the state of Virginia. I mean, just, I mean, Lee just looks like this uh, statue. And Grant, Grant has shown up in this muddy uniform, <laughs> muddy boots, you know, an old sack coat with his lieutenant general's so- shoulder straps so- sewn on. And, you know, Grant is confessing in his memoirs how mortified he felt. You're thinking, yeah, why? Why is he dressed that way? Well, the answer is because his baggage wagons were miles and miles and miles behind. He had been chasing Lee for a week since the abandonment of Petersburg and Richmond. And his supply wagons and baggage wagons were trailing far, far, far behind. Grant admitted afterwards he was so overextended that if Lee had declined the terms he offered at Appomattox, Grant would have had to have broken off the pursuit. He would have had no choice. So Grant, so to speak, (laughs) makes him an offer he can't refuse. And it is exactly the offer that Lee wanted to hear. And so they have the meeting of the minds at Appomattox. It's a peaceful surrender. The war comes to an end. The sad part, of course, is that Reconstruction has moments of guerrilla warfare to it. It has moments of insurgency. And you might legitimately ask, well, really, what what was gained? What was gained from the surrender then? Because you got this insurgency, you got the Ku Klux Klan, you got the White Line, the League of the White Camellia, the White League, and so on like that. Yes, you did, but you never got it 
in anything like the scope that you would have gotten it if the Army of Northern Virginia had taken to the hills on its own. Yeah. Uh, what Lee did, and I say this ironically, what Lee did at Appomattox was probably the greatest service he ever gave to his country hmm. by surrendering the rebel army and surrendering it intact. And, and I say that ironically because Lee himself would never have thought of that as a, as a great deed he was doing on behalf of the United States. But objectively speaking, uh, yes, he actually did at that moment. Right. Uh, before we spend too much time on what Lee does after the war, I want to talk about Lee as a military commander. Can, can you tell us about him as a military leader? He doesn't, he doesn't seem like he loved the military. Right? <laughs> er, early in his career, he looks repeatedly for exits. And he yeah, doesn't seem, yeah. like I said earlier, like a supremely ambitious man. He doesn't seem like a Bonaparte. No, no. In fact, um, he, he even tries to resign during the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, after Gettysburg, he submits a resignation letter to uh, Jefferson Davis saying, you really need to find someone more fit to command. I'm too old to function in the field and so on and so forth like that. And he had good reason for saying it. I mean, one, he had had a heart attack right. in the spring of 1863. It was a serious, serious heart attack that that disabled him for uh, at least a month. Uh, he's sustained this defeat at Gettysburg. It's embarrassing. Uh, and and he's looking at the overall situation, and the light is growing dimmer for the Confederacy. So, all right, he's going to offer to uh, to resign. Uh, Jefferson Davis refuses it. Who, who is he going to put in his place? <laughs> right. uh, but uh, yeah, Lee, Lee had Lee does not see himself as the great rescuer. No. He does not even think of himself as some great uh, pioneering military figure. We have to look at Lee and evaluate him on three terms, which is the which are the same three terms we'd use to evaluate any effective military leader, and that is the strategic, the tactical, and the logistical. The strategic, you know, what is his command of the big picture? Tactical, how does he operate on the battlefield itself? And logistics, how does he manage supply and movement? Strategically, he is an excellent thinker. Mm. He sees very early on that the Confederacy cannot go a 15-round bout with the Union. If the Confederacy is going to secure its independence, it's got to get in and score an early surprise knockout in the first couple of rounds. Otherwise, long term, it's going to lose. And were other Confederate leaders thinking the same way, or is that unique to Lee? And if it was unique to Lee, where, where did that come from? Is it intuition? or I think it's very, it's very much unique to Lee. Lee has mm -hmm. to persuade Jefferson Davis of this. Davis up to that point had, uh, when at that point, I mean 1862, Davis up to that point had been committed to a cordon defense mm -hmm. of the Confederacy. Lee argues against it. No, we've got to carry the war north of the Potomac into Maryland, into Pennsylvania, because there we can bring Maryland along with us. And we, if we score some kind of a military victory on Pennsylvania soil, that will have political repercussions for the Lincoln administration. Uh, Lincoln administration is facing uh, off-cycle elections in the fall of 1862. If the Confederacy can win a victory of any significant sort, uh, in the fall of 1862, then that will sour the northern uh, populace on supporting the Lincoln administration. Uh, Lincoln's support will disappear. Lincoln will be forced to open negotiations. He's thinking strategically. Yeah. He's thinking the same way in 1863. He's thinking about the big picture. Tactically, 
on the battlefield, he's less involved, or at least he wants to be less involved. He describes his tactical philosophy this way. My job is to bring my army to the place of battle, and then my lieutenants take over. And then when he's thinking about lieutenants, he's thinking about James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson. At that point, they are responsible for the actual fighting. In other words, it's a very hands-off approach to things. He doesn't really see himself as a tactical thinker. And the times when he is compelled to take tactical control are clearly times when he doesn't enjoy doing what he's doing. And doesn't it doesn't always shine either in in term you know, there there are moments when he does have to take tactical control and those are moments when he does not really display much more than bravado, much more than let's go get him. Uh, that's not really a very sophisticated philosophy of tactics. Yeah. Logistics may be the weakest point hmm. because Lee early on even during his service in the Mexican War, and really even before that, learned this very important lesson. Don't mess with the politicians. And the problem with logistics is, logistics is the point where you do have to interface with the civilians who are the contractors who supply your armies with food and equipment, and you have to interact with the politicians because the politicians are the ones who are approving decisions about funding and allocations. He is so allergic to involving himself in political matters that even when the Confederate politicians are making the most stupid decisions, he'll back off and say, I really can't do anything about that. He will, in that respect, effectively allow Confederate civilian incompetence to starve his army, to deplete his army, and to drain its effectiveness. And he'll, saw, he'll stand by and he'll do that because he just simply does not believe that it's his province as a soldier to mix himself up in politics. Mm-hmm. The most dramatic example of that occurs in the closing weeks of the war. He goes by night, like Nicodemus to Jesus, and he goes by night to Virginia Senator Robert M.T. Hunter. And he goes to Hunter because Hunter had just come from being a three-man delegation to meet with Lincoln and Seward at Hampton Roads about the possibilities of peace negotiations, which which fell through. Lee goes to Hunter by night and says to Hunter, look, the war is effectively over. Jefferson Davis is delusional. Uh, We've got to find some way of restarting those negotiations because otherwise we're kaput. Hunter's response is to say to Lee, look, I'm only a Virginia senator. You're General Lee. If you would say these things to the Confederate Senate, they would follow you. And Lee's response is, I can't do that. I am a soldier. I have to do what I'm told by the civilians who are in charge. And so it doesn't happen. And the war goes to the conclusion that we find it tending toward at Appomattox Courthouse. After the war, did Lee ever express any regret for his role in the war? No. No. If anything, Lee becomes, you might say, more of a Confederate after the war mm-hmm. than he was before. During the war, he has next to nothing to say in terms of defending the legitimacy of the Confederacy. I mean, he'll make a few official statements that are kind of political bromide, the kind of things you have to say in front of reporters. But privately, he's 
less than enthusiastic. After the war, it's different because in the closing, uh, at the at the close of the war, within a month of the surrender at Appomattox, they're already talking about indictments for treason. And in fact, Lee is indicted for treason. And he, he, that's the moment when he starts to make arguments defending the legitimacy of the Confederacy. He has to because his life is literally yeah. going to be at stake. So he's suddenly going to do an about face and put a lot of energy into defending legitimacy of the Confederacy because that's going to be the argument that defends him. Mm. So that being the case, you find Lee after the war saying things much more concretely about defending the Confederacy and we were right to do this and right to do that, uh, that uh, you don't hear him saying during the war, much less before it. <clears throat> One thing he does not, though, defend is slavery. Now, that's significant, but only up to a point. Because once the war was over, most of the Confederate leaders tried to backpedal from slavery anyway. Mm -hmm. So you have people like Richard Taylor in his memoir, uh, Destruction and Reconstruction, saying, well, the war was never about slavery. It was always about states' rights or things like that. And that becomes one of the standard talking points of the lost cause. But at the same time, Lee will make it very clear that he's not going to try to put a halo around the Confederacy. He discourages people from investing in Confederate monuments. One of his cavalry officers wrote to him saying, well, women in, in Richmond are taking up a fund to put up this monument to the Confederate soldier. And Lee's response is, is curiously chilly. Hmm. He's like, no, I don't, really think that's, um, I don't really think that's a worthwhile pursuit. When he's invited in 1869 to come to Gettysburg, for a kind of reunion of the major figures of the Union and the Confederate Army at the Battle of Gettysburg. He declines. He says, I don't think any good would come of it. It would only, it would only stir up bad feeling. And he warns people, warns Verena Davis, the wife of Jefferson Davis, let's not do the kinds of things that will poke the uh, leadership of the United States. Let's, th those things are not going to be productive. So he counsels people just lay low, don't, don't do stupid things and don't say provocative things, don't, don't have arguments, don't do Confederate monumentation or anything like that. Now, part of that, I think, is principled. He wanted peace. Part of it is pragmatic. He didn't want more of the kind of peace that Union authorities were imposing during Reconstruction. So you can read it as a mix of those things. And yet what is curious is that in the years after the war, he takes no interest in military affairs. He makes some halting gestures toward writing a history of the Army of Northern Virginia. And people immediately start thinking, oh, he's going to write a history of the Confederacy, defending the Confederacy, and he has to tell people, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. I just want to write a memoir of the service of, of the Army of Northern Virginia. But he never really brings that anywhere close to fruition either. He surprises a student at Washington College where he's the president by saying, the great mistake of my life was taking a military education. Hmm. Which is a, a, an astonishing statement from someone whose whole career had been bound up with the military, whose reputation 
was that of a military commander. And yet he will say, this was my big mistake in life. He is not trying to picture himself or the war that he fought in these glowing, beautiful terms. Unlike Ulysses Grant, when he's president of Washington College, he doesn't surround himself with his old cadre of staff and officers. He doesn't attend reunions. There's, there's, almost, there's almost a remarkable silence from Lee about the war itself and the fighting of the war. And it's difficult not to read that silence as a kind of regret. Hmm. And especially when you combine it with that comment about, you know, the great mistake of my life. Uh, that doesn't sound like an, a, a vigorous endorsement of Confederate military history. No, it doesn't. You make a lot of Lee's relationship to his father, uh, the, the legendary Revolutionary War hero, Light Horse Harry Lee. If you'd like to help us understand that relationship, please go ahead. But, but I'm more interested in this broader question. As an historian, how do you balance, on the one hand, just sort of giving the reader the facts and you do with them what you please, while on the other hand, uh, uh, helping us understand those facts, what they actually mean and what they might have meant to Lee? My job, I see as a historian, is, is not merely to do the Jack Webb thing, just the facts, ma'am. That's, that's probably fine for detective science. Yeah. But that's because a detective only does a certain amount. There is someone who is going to have to make something of those facts, and that may be a defense lawyer or it may be a prosecutor, but it's going to happen in a court of law. My task as a historian might begin with Jack Webb to find the facts, but it's also going to extend to include the pleadings of the lawyers back and forth, and I will be both sides, and the judge at the end. Mm. Because if history is simply an assembly of nuts and bolts of facts, then it's facts, 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 and no philosophy of facts. It doesn't really have any meaning. And history is about meaning. I mean, the, the whole purpose of history for as far back as Herodotus is to discover meaning. When Herodotus wanted to describe the Persian War, he didn't want to simply describe how the Greeks and the Persians encountered each other at Marathon or Salamis or places like that. What Herodotus wanted to show was what really motivated the Greeks and the Persians. And the Persians were motivated by the lash. They were motivated by their tyrannical rulers, whereas the Greeks were motivated by eleutheria, by freedom. And that is what made the Greeks charge at Marathon, their love of freedom. Herodotus was looking for meaning. Yes. You begin with the facts, but from the facts, there's where you derive the meaning. And it seems to me that a history which pulls shy of trying to talk about meaning has only really done half its job. Mm. When I have looked at Robert E. Lee... I have looked for meaning. That's why the title of the book is Robert E. Lee, A Life. Because I'm really going after is the life of the man. I think some people may be disappointed that I don't spend more time with the campaigns of the Civil War. And there are books you can, you can read that do that. There's one biography of Lee, for instance, where 
all of Lee's life before 1861 is covered in 50 pages. <laughs> and then the rest of this huge book is all about the details of the campaign. Well, all right, there, there's room for those kinds of books. But what I was looking for was the man. I wanted to understand Lee himself. I wanted to understand his life. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out because Lee is not very forthcoming. I said that he's... he's complicated without being complex. Yeah. Well, he's complicated in his letters. The problem is that it does, does, doesn't always reveal very much. You have to look and hunt very carefully for when he's going to tell you something. And eventually he does. And what I looked for in Lee really began with his relationship with his father. His father was Light Horse Harry Lee, the great revolutionary hero, a great soldier, a great cavalryman, and a total catastrophic failure as a civilian and as a father. Light Horse Harry abandons his family. There's no better word for it. When Robert Lee is just seven years old. And I was struck by a comment that Leon Edel made in his book about the Bloomsbury thinkers in London. And in it, Edel said, there is no pain greater in the human heart than the loss of a parent before adolescence. And I think that's very true. And I think that Robert E. Lee is exhibit A of that. Mm. Because that loss of that parent triggers a lifetime of compensation. And the first compensation Lee tries to make for it is perfection. He is going to be the perfect Lee that his father was not. But it's not just perfection that typifies Lee. It's also a passion for security. Mm. The security, of course, he never had from his, from his distinguished father. But that security has to be purchased sometimes at the cost of independence. But independence is what he wanted, too. He wanted to be his own man. He didn't want to be known just as the son of Light Horse Harry Lee. And those three forces in Lee's life, the passion for perfection, the pursuit of independence, the yearning for security, those three factors are really the three sons in the solar system of Robert E. Lee's life that orbit around him and around each other. And Lee spends a lifetime trying to satisfy them. And he doesn't really achieve it until those last five years of his life, after the war, when he becomes the president of Washington College. Washington College was this little it was hardly much more than a finishing school for the Scots-Irish elite of the upper Shenandoah Valley. And when I say elite, we're not really talking about the the FFV of Virginia. Uh, he goes and becomes, to people's surprise, he accepts the presidency of this institution, which hardly had a heartbeat by the time the Civil War was over. He builds it up into this powerhouse. In five years, he's built the endowment to a quarter million dollars. He's brought the student body from 12 in 1865 to over 400 mm. by 1870. He's, he's made it a powerhouse. And within, he's 
completely revamped the curriculum. Before that, Washington College was all about a classical curriculum. You studied Greek, you studied Latin, and that was it. Oh, no, no. He comes in with a totally different philosophy. We're going to do journalism. We're going to do business. We're going to study engineering. He wants, in other words, he, he wants a modern curriculum. And he puts it in place. Because the trustees, who might have thought they were hiring Robert E. Lee as a figurehead, you know, a great name to put on the, on the college stationery, no, 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 no. They became the figureheads. Mm. He became the man in charge of Washington College. Because after all, which, which member of the board of trustees was going to challenge General Lee? <laughs> and it is in that environment that Lee finally brings those three threads of his life together. Mm. Perfection, independence, security. Security because the college was actually very good to him, very generous with him. Independence, because he made his own decisions. And he didn't have to take his hat off and ask someone else's opinion. And perfection. You know where he displays, I think, perfection best? It's a very odd moment, but it's, it's the moment when he dispenses with the college's <clears throat> rule book for students. You, you might say he takes what we would call the university handbook on, on behavior and kind of throws it in the waste can. And says, the only rule that we have here at Washington College is that a student will be a gentleman. And you look at that and you say, oh my goodness, isn't that generous of General Lee? No rules except being a gentleman. Except when you realize that that means that Robert E. Lee is going to be the judge, jury, and executioner (laughs) of what constitutes a gentleman. Perfection. He's able to impose his view of perfect behavior on those students without let or hindrance. So that is, that is the Lee that we find early on in his life. That is the Lee that we trace through his lengthy career in the Army and on the Civil War, and it's the Lee that we find in those last five years at Washington College. And that is a life. And so much of it runs back to that early experience when his father leaves and he never sees his father again. Curiously, he doesn't visit his father's grave until December of 1861. His father returned from his self-imposed runaway in the West Indies. He made landfall on the Georgia Sea Islands. He was already dying of cancer and died two weeks after arriving there, so he never saw his son again. And Robert never never visits his father's grave until December of 1861. Why then? Because it's then that Robert E. Lee is starting to come into his own as General Lee. Hmm. He's coming into his own as his own personality. He can now begin to come to grips with the father who deserted him all those years before. And in the last year of his life, he'll actually publish a brief memoir. Well, it's only 70 pages. But it's a brief memoir of Light Horse Harry. He's finally come to terms with this man who's cast this shadow over his life. Before that, one of the most curious things is how Robert E. Lee and all that vast correspondence I was describing never talks about Light Horse Harry. Never once. Despite the fact that everywhere he goes when he's being introduced to people, he's being introduced as the son of Light Horse Harry Lee. He never talks about his father. 
That's like the dog that didn't bark mm. in the Sherlock Holmes story. I think that says a great deal. It's only at the very end of his life he's really able to come fully up to terms with the legacy of Light Horse Harry Lee. Last question. The final word on Robert E. Lee. How do we judge him? Traitor, marble man, military hero? Who is he? He's all of the above and a few more things, too. He's a man of tremendous and strict self-control, but a self-control that gets away from him, and when it does, he becomes like Light Horse Harry, mm. a man of violent and passionate temper. And there are incidents, ugly incidents, in Lee's life which testify to that. Is he a significant figure in American history? Actually, only for the role that he plays as the Confederate Generalissimo during the Civil War. Otherwise, Robert E. Lee has next to nothing to contribute to us in the way of defining our national experiment, the way Lincoln does. He certainly does nothing in the way that Sherman and Grant do to protect, defend, and perpetuate it. If anything, he's trying to break it apart. So are there things that you can admire in Lee? Yes, but they have to be weighed against the things that make you realize that Robert E. Lee came very close to being responsible for the demolition of the American experiment. And you have to hold him to account for that. And anyone who tries not to, I think, is deceiving themselves. When I speak of Lee as having committed treason, I'm not using the word lightly. Not using it as a throwaway or an insult term. My father was a career army officer. My son is a captain in the U.S. Army. They took the oath. I, I took the oath uh, only when I was joining the National Council for the Humanities as a presidential appointment back in 1906. But still, I took the oath. I have a picture myself, you know, with Bruce Cole and the chairman taking the oath. I take that seriously. I didn't take that oath lightly. My father didn't. My son didn't. Robert E. Lee struck against that oath. So in that sense, Robert E. Lee struck against me. But I also remember a rule laid down in a literary critic for whom I have profound respect, the great John Gardner, who died in the mid-1980s, young, unfortunately, tragically but who said things that, while he was writing about fiction, I think have ample ap application to biography and to history. There can be, Gardner said, no compassion without will, and no will without compassion. What he meant by that was, every historian, every artist has to judge. You have to have the will to make judgment. You have to say, this was wrong. Or this was right, this was admirable, this was despicable. You have to do that. Otherwise, what you're doing is simply spinning wheels. You're of no help to anyone at that point. You have to have that will to make judgment. But at the same time, there can be no real will to judgment without compassion. Just as there can be no compassion without the will to judge. Compassion without the will to judge is just sloppy empathy. So you balance these two in dealing with Robert E. Lee. 
You want compassion, but you also want the will to judge. And you have to have both. And I would say that you have to have both when you talk about any subject of difficult biography. And I try to keep Gardner's rule in view as I'm talking not only about Lee, but also about so many of these other figures of great importance in our history. No compassion without will. No will without compassion. If I could leave a rule for everyone to heed coming out of this discussion, that would be the one. Our guest today has been Alan C. Gelzo. We have been discussing his best-selling new biography, Robert E. Lee, A Life. Dr. Gelzo, thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. The great Alan C. Gelzo on his really tremendous new biography of Robert E. Lee. Anything Alan writes is worth reading, and this is certainly no exception. We went long today, so I won't add anything else other than to thank you all for joining us today. We hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>